I, we, we weren't allowed to watch television in my house. We didn't go to the movies. So it wasn't until I was, you know, in college that I started actually tracking the the films that I talk about in the book. But even though we weren't allowed to to watch them, they still somehow reached us, right? It was it was the, John Wayne was a was a figure that was present in my childhood and in our churches, even though you know, supposedly none of us were watching him or you know following or had followed his career. Hmm. But he, he was truly was larger than life. I mean, he's one of those handful of figures, kind of Mount Rushmore of pop culture icons for Middle America. You know, white working class folks in Middle America, like he was. A defining figure. I don't think I've read anything that does justice to just how convoluted and entangled what you're calling values are in those narratives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's because I think the Western is the American story. It's the story Americans tell themselves, or at least it's the story that Americans in the positions of cultural dominance tell themselves about who they are. And because of that, it's so compact and it's so entangled that I, I don't actually don't think, I don't know that it is possible, right? To pull apart all of the ways in which different values are at work at the same time, right? In, in many ways, contradictory values are at work at the same time. And it's part of the, the energy of those stories and the power of them is that they're stories that are holding together more than a story should be able to hold together. And this is why, I mean, I. I think Dumay's book was an important book. I mean, she raised crucially important issues, provoked yes. a serious conversation that that you know was had been needed for a long time. Yes, but I don't think her account does just does anything like justice to the stories themselves, right? And to the ways in which those stories work in popular imagination. Welcome everyone to another episode of Deep Talks. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. And in today's episode, we have Dr. Chris Green joining us. I have been a longtime admirer of Dr. Green's work going back well over 10 years now. Um, as a Pentecostal theologian and me coming from charismatic and Pentecostal context, Dr. Green's work was uh, really a lifeline to me uh, well over a decade ago. And really did encourage me to consider the more academic side of theology as not being something that is uh, of negative impact to the life of devotional worship as a follower of Jesus. And to actually consider the life of the mind as something that is deeply important part of a holistic, integrated Christian spirituality. So I'm so thankful for Dr. Green. Today's conversation to me is really, really important. And uh, it might not seem like that because you're thinking, oh, the title of this has something to do with, you know, cowboys and Westerns and archetypal heroes. And you go, oh, what's this can't be that important. But I promise you, as you listen, you're going to see how important these formative stories are on our imaginations, on our ethics, on our Christian spirituality. And even for those of you that don't identify as, as, as Christian, I think you'll see how important these nuanced stories are on our entire way of doing ethics, thinking about violence, nonviolence. This is a special conversation. Now, during this calendar year, I'd made the decision to move most of my videos over to my Patreon page and to offer them as a benefit, as a thank you to those who have been supporting my work, keeping it free of advertisement. 
but I really felt that this conversation deserved to just be out in the general public. And I've not edited edited it in any way. Uh, I had been splitting these up into small, smaller, more manageable blocks. I couldn't do that with this conversation. There was no clean place to just chop and go, here's a break, here's a part one, here's a part two. So I'm presenting it as it is. And I'm really thankful for the time that Dr. Green donated to uh, share and participate in this conversation. I hope you find it enriching and challenging. Please do consider leaving comments below with your questions, objections, your own observations. I love reading those. You can also share them with me if you are supporting on Patreon. You can message me. You can participate in the discussion forum there or in the Deep Talks Discord server. And with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Chris Green. Friends, I'm delighted today to be joined by actually someone I've been following for quite some time. And I was just reflecting with Dr. Chris Green here about my initial exposure to his work, which goes back well over 10, 12 years ago. Someone who has been thoughtfully engaging with the Pentecostal tradition. And while I probably identify more with the, the charismatic side and, and those that have had experiences in both know that those are actually two somewhat distinct and yet overlapping streams. Uh, Chris's work was very, very formative and actually um, pushing me and encouraging me to get back into um, academic theology and actually to go back to go back to school and further my education. So, Chris, I'm delighted to to actually get down and uh, get to sit down here and talk with you today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, Paul. It's a joy. Uh, Chris is professor of public theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. He's also the director for St. Anthony Institute of Theology, Philosophy, and Lit Liturgics. And he's the author of several books, one of which I wanted to spend some time today unpacking. And this new latest book from Dr. Green is All Things Beautiful and Aesthetic Christology. It's a wonderful book. It's provocative. It follows the cycle of the church calendar, which again was not something I grew up with any sort of awareness of, but I have uh, has become an important part of my spirituality and following Jesus today. I want to set the stage for why I invited. I mean, I I've been thinking about inviting you on, Chris, for <laughs> for years, and I think maybe we've even had some passing conversations about it over other topics at yeah, the yeah, time. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But I'm glad this is the one. And so yeah. here's why I reached out to you. And, um, you know, I'm I'm on staff at a church here in Minneapolis. And uh, so I was teach, teaching. We occasionally do these theological elective classes, you know, kind of get people out of their Sunday school groups and get people together for a, a, a topic in, in the world of theology. So I was doing a two-week course on cultural theology and this is with about 100 people in our church community, ages ranging from, you know, early 20s all the way up to people in their 80s. You know, we're a very old church congregation. And one of the things I was helping them think through was the power of stories in culture and guiding stories and myth in shaping what we believe about God, our role in the story, shaping our meaning-making endeavor. So one of the exercises I had people doing in groups was just to reflect on at various stages of their life, what stories were they consuming that they look back on now and go, you know what, without making any value judgment on whether these were shaping me in positive or negative directions, here are the stories that I recognize 
were shaping me. And, you know, I shared from my own past of going, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm an older millennial. So 1999, it was fight club and it was the matrix, (laughs) you know, shaping me to think about life in a cubicle being worse than living in a hell. You know, that was the way that story was presented. I've never had an office job and I, I can look back and go, man, yeah, those stories were shaping me in particular ways. But it was interesting to hear from the generations, the the more mature generations in my church share about the stories that were shaping them. And it kind of caught me by surprise in some sense. I was hearing, especially from men in these older generations, and I'm talking about guys in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, a reoccurring story was the Lone Ranger, yeah. Gunsmoke. And one of the things I I thought of right away was when I was hearing that, I instantly thought of Kristen Dumais, Jesus and John Wayne yep. book, yep, of course, which created quite a bit of hullabaloo, you know, a few years ago, yep. right around the election uh, cycles. And, um, you know, Dumais book, from my vantage point, largely presented these cowboy archetypes, the John Wayne in my reading of it as being a demonic idol that was a substitute for following Jesus Mm -hmm. for many, primarily men in evangelical cultures. But it was interesting when I started to get them to think about the next tier, which was we take these stories and in these stories are embedded values that seep into us in ways that we're not always consciously aware of. So let's practice being consciously aware in reflection on these stories of what values were being transmitted. It's interesting what I heard them talk about, and and maybe they just needed deeper introspection. I don't know, but the things that they were talking about, and I felt like people were being very honest about this, weren't extracting from those stories like chauvinism, violent gunslinging. Mm -hmm. They were extracting from these stories values that they used words like honor, duty, big running theme of defending the defenseless. You yeah. know, that was an important thing that they were extracting mm-hmm. courage in the face of evil, et cetera. So that got me over these last few weeks, re-examining what's the proper way to think as a follower of Jesus about the archetypal cowboy yeah. agents of wrath and what you call in chapter three of your book, the hunter hero. So yeah. could you lead us through your own journey of reflection on the American Western myth you mentioned it's one of your favorite chapters that you wrote yeah. <laughs> wrote about. So what drew you, what attracted you to assessing that myth and its formative power in the American psyche and just this archetype of the hunter hero? Yeah, I mean, some of it is my conflictedness about it. I mean, I love those stories. I love, I mean, I grew up reading them, Louis Lamar novels, Zane Gray novels, I grew up, we we weren't allowed to watch television in my house. We didn't go to the movies. So it wasn't until I was, you know, in college that I started actually tracking the the films that I talk about in the book. But even though we weren't allowed to to watch them, they still somehow reached us, right? It was it was the John Wayne was a was a figure that was present in my childhood and in our churches, even though supposedly none of us were watching him or you know following or had followed his career Mm. but he he was truly was larger than life i mean he's one of those handful of figures kind of mount rushmore of pop culture icons for middle america you know white working class folks in middle america like he was a defining figure and i've always been i've always been drawn to it 
And I, I don't know in terms of if there was one event or one moment in my life where it kind of turned, but I, I started to sense this tragic element. That's what I would call it in these stories. And I was drawn especially to that. And I, I don't think I've read anything and I don't think my chapter does, does justice to another. I don't think I've read anything that does justice to just how convoluted and entangled what you're calling values are in those narratives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's because I think the Western is the American story. It's the story Americans tell themselves, or at least it's the story that Americans in the positions of cultural dominance tell themselves about who they are. And because of that, it's so compact and it's so entangled that I, I don't actually don't think, I don't know that it is possible, right, to pull apart all of the ways in which different values are at work at the same time, right? In, in, in many ways, contradictory values are at work at the same time. And it's part of the the energy of those stories and the power of them is that they're stories that are holding together more than a story should be able to hold together. And this is why, I mean, I I think Dumais' book was an important book. I mean, she raised crucially important issues, provoked yes. a serious conversation that that you know was had been needed for a long time. Yes. But I don't think her account does just does anything like justice to the stories themselves, right? And to the ways in which those stories work in popular imagination. And, and again, I'm not this is not false modesty. I don't think my chapter does either. I think what my chapter is at least trying to do is point to the ways in which there's really there's mystery at work in these stories mm -hmm. for us and and confusion to all kinds of complexities and intricacies that it doesn't surprise me at all that the folks you're talking with are drawing out virtues yes right? they're they're drawing out things that christians should should celebrate as well as things that they shouldn't and th and those things are kind of as i say as i keep saying entangled interwoven like jammed together in these stories so for you, it's an interesting reflection that you, as a, you know, in a context where you weren't even allowed to have a TV, that these, these stories are still, they are, this is going to frame it negatively, but I, I can't think of a better expression. They are principalities and powers. Yes. You know, they are, they are guiding stories that you just can't help. This is the sea you're swimming in. If you just so happen to be an American, you don't even need to be consciously consuming them because you're already enmeshed in culture. And that was kind of like, as I think back in my own childhood, it was similar with music, Chris, you know, it was like, I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music okay. growing up, but you know what? Yeah. Secular music still influenced me. Cause when I popped in Jesus, talk, uh, Jesus freak by DC talk, I heard a Nirvana riff. That yes. was just a, yeah. You know. And at some point in your life, and I remember this too, we weren't allowed to either, but I had enough of a sense of what DC talk and other, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, but that, mm -hmm. that same experience, you know, with someone like Amy Grant or Dallas mm -hmm. Holm, like yeah. I knew somehow I knew that they were imitating something else for me. Yes. That they were taking a sound that I wasn't allowed to hear and mediating it to me so that I could hear it. I, like, I don't know how I knew that, but I did. I mean, I knew as a young kid that the Christian art was was taking what was best in that world out there that I couldn't reach and, and mediating it to me. Yeah. So tell, explain a little bit about what you mean when you talk about this hunter hero archetype, and maybe you could cite some, some yeah. practical examples um, 
that you either talk about in your book or maybe they, you know, maybe there were some others you didn't, that didn't make the cut. Oh man, there's so many. I, the Probably my favorite read right now is Cormac McCarthy. I actually wrote several things about him that didn't make it into the book um, because it was such a, there was, it was so much more. I'm, I'm hoping eventually to do a book just on McCarthy's kind of anti-Western Westerns. And I, I think he's, he does this as as well as anyone I, I that's done it, but that's an example of somebody who didn't make the cut. Um, but I, I, the Slotkin Richard Slotkin has a series of books on the gunfighter myth and what he calls the myth of redemptive violence, and he he works through you know one of the books is called Gunfighter Nation. He talks about the American story is a story. It's a frontier myth. It's another another term that will come from him drawing on. This this old idea that the American imagination is a frontiering imagination, that we always are thinking about going to new lands, conquering new territory. And, and Slotkin points out the ways in which geographically, when we've gone from coast to coast, then we start thinking in, in terms of conquering space. Right. right? And the language of our presidents and the language of our military, the language of our what we now call space force. Is which is, I'm never going to be able to say that without laughing. But <laughs> the that we we talk in frontier terms and in terms of going out into the wilds. Yeah, there's a Phil Clay has this incredible book on the on the incredible essay on the history of the gun in America, and Phil talks a bit about the ways in which frontier myths feature in advertising for guns and have you know all the way back. So there's this kind of interesting nexus of not just how movies and stories affect us, but how ads affect us. Yeah. And how ads are kind of, again, compressed stories mm -hmm. that, that are taking stories they know we know and kind of focusing in on an aspect of them in order to sell us something. And one of the things that, you know, Remington and Colt and these other larger than life gun brands, one of the things they've been selling us for generations is the idea that the world is a frontier, that you live in a frontier where you are surrounded by savages that threaten your life and you are responsible to protect the innocent ones near you. And to do yeah. that, you need this weapon. To do that, you need mm -hmm. you need to be outfitted for it. And So it's a tool of order. It, right? Yes. It's yes, a tool to absolutely. bring order out of chaos. Right. And yes. so the frontier is often presented as again this this place and it, there's ob obviously some really troubling pictures of the way native americans are presented as simply agents of chaos things like that but it is unconquered territory and grants i think of stanley grants mm. and i think grants might have been borrowing this term from from someone else but he he called it our sense of infinite obligation that there seems to be something i don't i don't think it's even just particular to america but there is something maybe in which American values have this heightened sense of infinite obligation, this sense of questing, you know, it's, it's in our guiding, it's in our foundational myths, not just of the West. I think you mentioned this as well. It's in, it's in our pilgrim stories, oh, the absolutely. sense of we're going to a place that is untamed, unconquered. And here we are to bring rightful ordering to it. And Grant sees this as part of both our, evolutionary unique evolutionary appetite as a human species 
where he observes, he looks around and he goes, well, even if you look at other mammals, you know, most things in the created order are satisfied in their, their niche habitat. Yeah. You know, so they stay there. They don't necessarily, you can see like chimpanzee groups, which will patrol and try to expand their territory, but it's nothing like the human species, which we have this like longing for beyond. And of course, Grenz's argument is, you know, similar to that old God-shaped hole cliche is that the sense of infinite obligation is because we actually long for union with the infinite. And the way that takes improper manifestation is in greed, consumption, right? I mean, this is, this is, I think maybe some, some foundational Christian theology around what, what do we mean when we use terms like original sin and things like that? There's something Mm -hmm. disordered about the way we pursue the infinite and the frontier stories seem to be something like that. And what I hear you saying is like the gunslinger myth might be a myth about how do we pursue those ends and what are the right ways of ordering the chaos that we confront in our pursuit of the infinite? Is that, is that a fair way of rephrasing that? Again, everything we say is going to undersell just how, complex it all is so for example i i think that's what you said a moment ago about the ways in which you know sue and arapaho and apache what we you know what we called indians growing up mm-hmm. like why which again it's not an accident that they're misnamed in that way because columbus is is enacting this the same myth right this push for the the making order of the world right making an order that we believe matters i mean that's yes the whole nother you know the this didn't arise from nowhere, right? These American stories about the frontier. I mean, they they have a long, long, long history in in terms of developing that that imaginative approach to the to reality. But the 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 fact is, in most of these stories, and and certainly all of the ones that stand the test of time, so all of the what what I would say are worthwhile ones. You have natives who are both the threat and the salvation. Right. So think think about, you know, a story as basic as the leather stocking stories, you know, the 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 stories of Natty Bumpo, which most people will know as the the last of the Mohicans story, mm-hmm. which is actually a whole series of novels. Like he is himself a native. He dies as a native. He's he's buried with native peoples. He's a, a man who's more native than white. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's surrounded by natives whose wisdom guides him and is, is what enables him to save the whites and, you know, to save General Monroe's daughters and so on. Like and so there's this and you, and you can see this with Lone Ranger and Tonto. Yes. Yes. That even though the the Indian stands for chaos and, and uh, that which is against us, there is always in these stories also someone who is from them but is with us in such a way that we then learn how to be with them or against them in the ways that we need to be and i mean that there are so many different ways to read that i mean it it is it is deeply problematic i don't want to downplay that at all i think there there are ways in which that yeah it's absolutely racist it's it's othering one one of the ways of getting at this is the ways in which americans have thought about jews so there's a a polish i've forgotten his name but he's a polish critic literary critic who who coined the term allo-Semitic to refer to something that includes both love of Jews and hatred of Jews at the same time through 
this extreme othering of them. So the Jew Jew is such an extreme other that it it is to be adored and resented both at once. Hmm. And that um, Bauman picks it up, a theorist, postmodernist picks it up and works with it. This notion of allosemitism. And I think there's something like that in the American imagination about the native, like the yeah. native is noble, is a noble savage who is to be honored and in some ways is closer to, to God, closer to the truth than we are. And we have to learn from them in the way that Natty Bumpo learns from, from his, from his people. And yet at the same time, they're evil, demonic uh, manifestation of the satanic and there to, to take away what is ours and both are held at the same time. Right. And, yeah, and, that, and that's what I, I appreciate that, about that your chapter. Chris. The key. What I appreciate about your chapter not to cut you off, I want you no, to know, you're, you're thought, right. But I, I just want to celebrate something right away is I felt in your treatment of these stories that I think I, I felt and this, I don't mean this. Um, I, I don't want to be again, overly negative of Dumais book. I think it does play an important role, but it does seem like there was an oversimplification of, well, all these stories are black hat, bad guy, white hat, good guy. And what you're sharing is, no, these stories have layers of moral complexity here. Yeah. Even when we think about the, the Indian, the Native American and what role they play in the story, it's not just they are merely you know, part of the arena of chaos that people are encountering, but they are also like agents to help guide the protagonist to their end in their their own sort of hero's journey. Yes, that, that exactly. And it's a I mean, these are things you know deeply rooted in the Christian imagination. You have someone think about Dante. I mean, the the Inferno. His guide, his first guide, is not a Christian. Right? I mean, his first guide is a pagan philosopher. And there there is this something, and this to me is. You know, America. One way of thinking about these American stories are they're deeply Christian stories, who've been, re, which have been reworked through the experience of empire, and the experience of the frontier. So you have these. You have some themes that are that are ancient, that are at least medieval, like this this idea that the pagans are both with us and against us. That without, and of course. You see this in, in theology, you know, Christian theologians right from the jump have both totally. criticized, yeah. you know, the, the philosophers mm -hmm. and depended upon them. Right. You got Tertullian as more of the critic and you got Justin Martyr as the one who celebrates the pagans as the seeds of the logos being present in Greek, yeah. you know, Greek uh, mythology it, and philosophy. I, I do this in my philosophy for theology courses, one of the things I do is go to that passage in Tertullian, the famous, you know, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And if you read it, he is quoting from philosophers to make that point. So like the, the irony there, right, is that, that this seems to me to be then just, just a deeply Christian conflict because Christians are Jews, are people of Israel who are called to the nations and called to include the nations. And that tension is right at the heart of all Christian thought. Mm -hmm. of we, we're called to witness to all people Mm -hmm. We're called to welcome all people. We're called to confront the evil we confront in that mission and to own the evil that is at work in us. And that and that means we're kind of always living in this this tension of affirming and critiquing. Yeah, it's Christ. I mean, it's living between Christ against culture, to use an Irish term, and Christ of culture, 
where it's like, it's neither of these two things. It's got to be one of the mediating pathways, Christ transforming culture. I know there's critiques of, of, of Niebuhr's typology, but having lived, I mean, we're talking about even our own lived experience of being in context, being both being raised in context that were very much Christ against culture, where if we we're to continue with this analogy that the the native that we encounter, the culture outside of ourselves, outside of our own culture is demonic. And yet we are seeing ourselves in these stories that are like, no, we are, we can't separate ourselves because to separate ourselves totally from culture is to deny Christ's activity in culture. And then the whole story collapses. It doesn't make any sense. Christ comes to us in language, in yeah. symbol, in metaphor. We can't read the biblical story without importing culture. It's situated in culture. So how do we engage with the culture outside of our own, the world outside of our own, which comes to us as an experience of chaos? Because it's different. You know, mm -hmm. is it something to be conquered is it something to learn from? And I see those tensions in these stories that they aren't flat, no. you know? No, not, not at all. I mean, I think that even to the point about the, the hero, so Slotkin's phrase is the hunter hero, which is the hunt, the hunter aspect of it is it, survival, right? The, and expl exploration. So the, the the hunter has this responsibility, usually on behalf of, and there's this is another shift that I think Dumais' book is she's right that that's the way the myth often plays in popular political conversation, right? But it's not true of the myth themselves, right? So these hunters are not out there for themselves, like they're they're in every case, virtually in every case, they're. They're doing intercessory work. They're they're serving a community, right? And this is why, like you were saying, the the value that was coming up over and over again is what do the strong do for the sake of the weak? What exactly? Do, what do those with power do for those who are powerless? Right? That 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 virtue it's a priestly virtue. It's an intercessory one and a prophetic one. Like that that's what the hunter aspect is already naming, right? They're providers. They, they provide for us. But of course, that's also tied to they're 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 therefore the first to encounter the threat. They're the first to notice that, you know, this is about to get ugly. And often what will happen in these books or these movies is there's a moment in which, you know, these these peaceful, naive white people, usually foregrounding women and children in the story, they're they're headed somewhere, right? They're they're moving across country or They've been forced out of their homeland or their immigrants who, you know, are out of place here. And they're therefore easy prey for outlaws and for natives, for renegade natives. And again, another thing that's interesting is almost always in these stories, the natives who are a threat are named as being off the reservation, uh, as being some kind of renegade band who are in violation of their own people's code. As well That's as important, own, which is this is another dimension of like yeah. complexity, right? To the and it, it's still othering, and I don't mean to downplay the racism, it's just mm -hmm. more complex than we often account, right? Like mm -hmm. it's there's more going on there than simple all native peoples are wicked, right? right. It's, it's always more than that. Even in I think the the poorer stories, there's more complexity than that. Like even some of like you know, popular television shows, it's more complex than that. And certainly in great movies or great books, it's you know far more complex. But even those heroes, 
are deeply conflicted people. In almost every case, they hate violence. They have a backstory that haunts them. And they're, they feel a kind of responsibility because of their past failures to care for these innocent people, to, to intercede for them, right? And they they feel forced into, backed into, resorting to violence because they have no other option. Now, I, I think there, there's still problems there to be confronted, but it's it's just not true that these are these are monomaniacal enactors of violence, right? They're they're deeply broken, often humble and quiet intercessory figures mm-hmm. who feel responsible, who feel forced into acting on behalf of these women and children who who have no one else to act for them. I mean, that is that story recurs over and over and over and over again. And the price they pay is they themselves can never participate in the peace they make. And that that's the tragic dimension, right? Yes. Which is one of the first things I saw is that these heroes never get to be part of the world they make. They make the world for us, and then they're, they're estranged, and they have to be. And that's deeply connected to the way American culture celebrates the veteran, the war yes. hero. It's the thing that happens at every NFL football game yes. where... I mean, we're so immersed in it, but oftentimes we don't stop and think twice about it. I mean, if you were like an alien from another planet and you came to an NFL game, you're like, all right, these these guys are playing a sport. Why before the sport are fighter jets flying over the head of the stadium? Like, what is this going to do? And then why at halftime are they bringing out like, you know, some soldier that everyone's supposed to stand and and to cheer? And I I really feel like we're at this really important moment to me, this might be one of the most important questions in American Christian subculture right now is I don't think we know what to do with that hero. Mm-hmm. Are they a hero? So to me, I feel like there's this tension and I'm, I'm deeply moved and convicted by what we might say is a more Anabaptist engagement with violence and nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And to me, I've been attracted to it because of what I've perceived as the improper, let me put it like this, the the hunter hero has been esteemed as the highest of heroes in a hierarchy of heroes Mm -hmm. in our culture. So much so that, as you mentioned, that myth of redemptive violence is our central myth. And so we know when we go into a war movie, we go into a a Western, we go into a, a Marvel superhero movie, by and large part, we know how it's going to end the good guy is going to be stronger than the bad guy mm-hmm. and defeat the bad guy through his strength, strength as in power over yes. violence. And so we celebrate that. And yet I, I'm very thankful there's been a, again, this isn't particular to Anabaptists. You know, the Anabaptists oh, sure. would say this is the witness of the early church. And to that, yeah. they probably have history on their side, at least for the first three centuries of Christian history to to say yes the witness of the earliest followers of the way of Jesus was to reject all form of violence but what does that mean when we are in a position of being the majority context and so i think this was the question of course augustine and ambrose wrestled with it's even something you know richard hayes pacifist theologian i, I you know I, I i jotted down this quote from him um hayes argues that 
quote, if the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to a marginal community outside the circle of power, its teachings cannot be directly applied in a context where Christians hold positions of power and influence, or where they constitute the majority in a democratic political order. Now, I'm not saying that in agreement, but I'm saying that to me highlights yeah. the thing that in this moment, it's behind debates on Christian nationalism, yes, it's it on what's masculinity about is all masculinity to be the hunter hero is it always toxic what do we do with agents of wrath i feel like there's some real nuance in your chapter chris about this can you let us in a little bit more to where your current thought process is on how do i actually mm. rightly do i esteem these heroes at all are they even heroes should i consider them demonic idols that are counterfeits the way of Jesus. And even thinking real practically, Chris, about the implications if in a church context, would that mean I would try to actively, if I'm a student ministries pastor, would I deter young men from being involved in the police, yeah. in security as mm -hmm. soldiers? Yeah. Talk me through where your, your thoughts are at yeah, so this moment. I, is there a and I want to just say right up front, there are things that I feel confident about that I, I'm ready to stake stake my life on. And then there are things that, you know, I, I'll offer much more tentatively. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let me let me start with what I feel confident about. So I think part of and this is something Israel has given us. God has given us in 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 Israel's life. The, the stories of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon, like the what we call the Old Testament, that those stories are stories that are meant to train us to train our imaginations. Right? So I think these stories are designed to form communities that th these stories all allow for different readings, but those different readings kind of work together. They coalesce together into forming an imagination about what it looks like to live in the world communally and what to, what it looks like to live with disagreement covenantally. And I think it's telling that in all of these stories, there are there are no real heroes, right? So let me give some examples. Like the most, the the most innocent probably is Joseph. Like so, Abraham is a deeply flawed figure. Isaac is as well, and of course, we know about Jacob. So then you get to the story of Joseph, and Joseph doesn't really do anything wrong essentially. Although he starts off, you get these this kind of odd detail right at the beginning of the story that he's, he's out in the fields with his brothers and reports back to their father that the brothers have misbehaved. And you're, you're immediately, you're wondering, okay, what's this about, right? Like maybe the brothers were misbehaving, but is this, is there some kind of spoiled, what yeah. we would call tattletale dimension? Right, right. And why is why is this is our introduction to him? And then we're told that his father Jacob loves Joseph more than any any of his other brothers. So like we're introduced to him as a somewhat spoiled, favored kid, and we we don't quite know what that means. What's this coat about? Like why is he given this coat of many colors? It says, and then when when we start to hear his dreams. We're we're shocked by how self-centered they are. One of the things, one of the details that I had never noticed, um, Robert Alter, who's really, really translator, excellent reader of Old Testament texts, he points out, I had never noticed this, that it, the text never says that God gave Jacob Joseph these dreams. Hmm. That Joseph has a dream, 
and there are dreams about himself that in some sense come true, but not entirely, not exactly, but mostly. But there, the text doesn't say that God gave them to him, just that he had them, right? Those kinds of details, right, add nuance. Whereas if we're reading them flatly, if we come to those complex stories with a flattened imagination, then we're like, oh, here's a kid, he's loved by his father, and he dreams these dreams, and then we're off and running with a kind of Disney, Disney-fied imagination about, you know, God loves us, he gives us favor, and he wants us to dream dreams. But the story is doing something very, very, very different from that, right? So the, the story is introducing us to Joseph, who never really does anything wrong, but strikingly, he never prays. Hmm. Like there's never a moment where he offers or builds an altar, offers a sacrifice. He never communes with God. God never talks to him. And he delivers Israel. Like he is the reason that Israel does not starve, that the, the people do not starve and die. And he clearly loves his brothers and his father. But he's also the reason that they end up in bondage in Egypt. Like it's because he gathers them all there. And because he's gathers power to the Pharaoh, I mean, it's Joseph's idea to say, let everyone bring their grain here and entrust it to the Pharaoh. Right. right. So the text is not naive. Like the text is saying this man, this innocent man, this man who has a heart of gold, like it's not, it's not the heart of a worshiper though. It's not the heart of a man of faith. Not at least not in the ways we've come to see it in Abraham. And he's, a redeemer, but he's also the one who sets Israel up in the next generation to be enslaved, right? So I would argue that every story in scripture has that kind of complexity. It's working both for and against itself. It, you know, there it's there are cross pressures in every story. And that's true of our stories too, right? In part because we inherited those stories and it shaped our imagination. And then we told stories of that same kind in a new context, right? The problem came with the kinds of Christianity you and I grew up in which are kind of, you know, pop, what I would, would call parachurch ministries more than churches, hmm, in which they're yeah, caught yeah. up in doing certain things, right? Whether it's, you know, 24-hour prayer or mm -hmm. healing ministry or, you know, teaching eschatology. We we got, our, our churches became parachurch ministries and flattened our imaginations even more. So then we went back to these stories and read them and told them as if they themselves were flat, right? Mm. That's what's happened with, with our accounts, right? So I, I say all that to say, becoming better readers of scripture and better readers of our own stories is the only way forward to being able to read our lives more faithfully. Like we, there just isn't going to be another way. We're going to have to learn to read what's actually in the text and what's actually in our own myths before we can look around at our lives and, and have any kind of sense of judgment. Mm. So does that make sense? So totally as, yeah. as beautifully stated. So with that in mind, Chris, I think about maybe this is a chicken or an egg question. Part of, I think in Dumais argument, and I don't want to keep coming back to that, but I, I guess I am, <laughs> is that those stories, the John Wayne stories were more formative than the story of scripture in people's mm -hmm. lives. The question I want to reflect on a little bit here, as you mentioned these imperfect heroes, is I think about, and I did a little informal poll on Twitter because I was wondering, is this just me? Because I'm thinking back to the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, and you had this you had this line in your book about um, that the hunter hero is 
those that are quote haunted by the imperfect relation of nature and grace faded to a life apart Mm -hmm. and when i read that there were two characters that came to mind right away one was and i'm you know, you you included much uh, more highbrow literature in your book. I, I went with the pop, lowbrow stuff. The first thing I thought of was Marvel's most famous mutant, Logan, otherwise known as the Wolverine. Yes. And you could have taken that quote from your That's book, exactly. Chris, and put it right in the trailer for, you know, 2017's Logan. That's the story. It is the story. I'll, I'll throw that out there. We don't need to discuss that just for listeners to kind of chew on a little bit. But this well, can, can I just say this though before yeah. you go on, Paul? Feel free. Like, so part of the question you asked a moment ago was, are they heroes or not? And I, I think everything depends on what we mean by heroes. Here's here's what I think we should feel. We should feel some mixture of compassion and pity and awe and wonder. And honestly, we should feel that about every human being we meet. Like if we were paying attention, that's what we would feel about everybody. You know, like a sense of, oh, God, I hate that you had to suffer that. And you're a marvel. Like, how are you even possible? And and I think that there's my own father was a Marine um, and paid. I mean, he survived, thankfully. He was in Vietnam and came home, went right from the Marines to the police force. And which... I mean, he he handled himself honorably. He was a good man then and now. But you want to talk about um, a setup for difficulty, right? Take a young man, a a teenager, essentially, who's serving in combat in a war that is unpopular and he tends to come home from that. I mean, being raised in a broken home to go into that context in Vietnam, come back into the policing. Totally. Like, imagine what that does to the soul, right? Even, oh, totally. even the soul of someone like my father, who I respect deeply. And and then we're doing that to person after person after person after person. Mm-hmm. And I, I again, I'm deeply conflicted about it. Like, absolutely, yeah. I honor my father. Absolutely, I, I respect what he did. And he shouldn't have had to do it. Like, it's not something that should have been put on him. Yes. And it absolutely did break him in all kinds of ways. Like, yeah. He paid that price, and then I did, and my sister did, and my mom did. I mean, when my dad came back, he married. They had been high school sweethearts. They get married. They're married for like a week, and they get a divorce because he's just unbelievably explosively violent. And I mean, but I mean, how could he not be right? Like exactly. we we took a teenager and shaped him into a killing machine and put him in a foreign country and put his life at risk, you know, day after day after day after day, and stuff like that, right? I mean, it's just it's deeply, deeply, deeply conflicted. Like one of the, the gifts that I'm, I hold most precious one I haven't been given yet is the, the, the Bible my father carried when he was in the jungles. And you know, he says, I didn't carry it as a talisman. It wasn't magic to me. Like, this is, this is something I, I mean, this is who I was. And I wanted a reminder of who I was when I was there. Right. And I've, I've heard, some of the men, my, you know, my dad years and years later has reconnected with some of these men that he served with and the, and to listen to them talk about him as they remember him. Right. As this man of just like this deep integrity. Yeah. But he's not, he wasn't a saint. <laughs> he's not a saint now. Right. And, and so like, how, how do we name all of that? Right. I, I mean, I think it's impossible to, honestly, I think it is impossible to get at just how complex and you can't flatten him out to be black hat or white hat. No, no. And it, it, Frankly, Paul, it angers me that anybody would do that with any of these characters, with any right. of these people. 
because that's not real. Like that's not, that's not how life actually works. Yeah. And it does, it does to me betray a sense, uh, portray a sense of maybe even how some of our ways of identifying, you know, with oversimplification are also probably products of the cultural context that we inhabit in, in particular, you know, I grew up blue collar Detroit. Yeah. There's no way. Well, I don't know. I, 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 this is the thing I'm wrestling with Chris. Yeah. To, to imagine a world without hunter heroes, without like the, the good bad guy. Mm-hmm seems to me to imagine a w- much worse world where the outlaw and chaos reigns. And I'm I'm wrestling with this now because I, I see in context, especially those, you know, I, I don't live in that context anymore. I live in a great neighborhood. I'm really, really thankful for where we live. Not that the neighborhood I grew up in was rough. You know, it was, yeah. it was just, it was just blue collar. You knew, you knew you had, I mean, my grandfather was a, fought in world war ii in the pacific theater dwindled down to 90 pounds getting malaria came back and had seven kids with his wife and they all you know like i would have never known hanging out with him what he he went went through and so i can't just like demonize i can't go and be like all right uh, if this if the eschaton isn't realized right now Mm -hmm. this person is demonic idol a substitute i'm not saying like dumay is saying that but i I struggle with because i feel like i definitely think i think it's fair to say this paul i think people took her and used her to say that whether and i don't think she is saying that actually yeah that's absolutely what in on you know on instagram and on twitter that's exactly what certain kind of folks were doing with what she did right which is really which is really easy to do if you're living in a peaceful college campus town your upper middle class you don't necessarily see you don't see like the complexities yeah. of how violent the world is and again i'm coming at this with you chris not from a place of being settled on it i'm very much oh, in process yeah. and I'm, I'm working sure. through it with you because i, I sense uh maybe a maybe someone else that's also sojourning on this. But the point I was trying to make earlier was the question I'm re-examining too, Chris, is, all right, is the John Wayne story shaping people's reading of scripture in such a way where it celebrates these characters as heroes that we see in scripture that look like John Wayne, or again, chicken or an egg thing? I think about the second character that came to mind when I, I read that line about these hunter heroes haunted by the imperfect imperfect relation of nature and grace. The second person I thought of was King David. Mm-hmm. King David, yes, the, yes, yes, yes. You know, the shepherd, possibly a bastard child. I mean, I know that's up for debate, but I tend to lean towards that direction. Like, why yeah. didn't why didn't his father bring him there? Why why did he say in sin my mother conceived me? Yes. And he's so he's he's kind of on the he's not he's not the son of Saul. Yeah. You know, he he yeah. plays that role of kind of being on the edge and he's got a history his 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 CV, his resume, he's slain the lion and the bear. <laughs> right. and so now he's capable of slaying giants and this is the tension for me, Chris. That was the sign in the narrative 
simultaneously of God's anointing of him to be the man to lead Israel was that Saul is slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Mm-hmm. That was his resume. That he killed the giant was his resume. That he killed the lion and the bear was his resume. And simultaneously, when he wants to go build a house for God, he yeah. wants to build a temple for God's presence to reside in. God simultaneously tells him, no, you can't because you're a man that spilled too much blood. You've got blood on your hands. And I go, is this, is this people not necessarily importing John Wayne on that, but they actually have grown up in Sunday school lessons where, you know, I did this informal poll on Twitter because I was reflecting, I think back, who is the, to me, the hero of heroes in the Old Testament? And like in my formation, it was David. Absolutely. And I think most people either respond to a David or Moses, some people, Elijah. So when I actually, here's the question. So, cause I'm watching like the Mandalorian with my kids and I'm going, I'm reading your book and I'm going, oh shoot. Am I just perpetuating the myth of redemptive violence here by celebrating this with my kids? Or would my kids be like the Mandalorian is like David Mm -hmm. and we see David as a biblical hero. So now we're importing that on him. I mean, can we separate yeah. it? Is there any neat way of separating it? No, I, I don't think we can. I don't I think, think we can make some distinctions. That. I think we can make some distinctions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, let, let me let me come at it like this. So I, I want to make a difference between the stories we've told. So, and, I, and I'm, I'm including here, you know, highbrow stuff, but also, you know, the Wolverine story or the Mandalorian, whatever. Like these stories that we, I mean, Star Wars is absolutely space Western, right? So yeah. like the... Let's 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 have that as a category. The stories we've told, and then the biblical stories that they both shape our reading of and are are themselves already shaped by. Right. So all of these stories are only possible because we come from a culture that is shaped by these texts. Right. And most of the people who are engaging these stories are then also reading those texts in an ongoing right. way. So there's reciprocity there. And I don't think we can neatly figure out in any particular case which comes first. It is chicken and egg that way. But they definitely, there's a mutuality. These stories were told because we read those. We read those stories in the ways we read these, for sure. Yeah, I mean, just think of your context. I mean, you grew up apart from these stories, and I guarantee you heard the story of David over and over. And I wonder, even for you, Chris, is whether or not the first time you saw a John Wayne movie, or for me, it was seeing The Magnificent Seven and Yul Brenner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I look at that and I go, that's a hero. Absolutely. Do, am I saying that because I've actually been shaped by at least one reading of the biblical story that would celebrate David as a hero? That's it. That's the that's the key, what you just said, the reading. So here's the problem, I think. And I think this is why we're left kind of adrift on this, <clears throat> is that the way we were taught to read in kind of middle America, free church Christianity is so impoverished and so flattened that we then give super superficial readings of our own stories and of the biblical stories. Mm. And I think this is especially true of churches that we're trying to make it right. So like when you're in a context of a pair, what I'm calling a parachurch ministry, that's trying to grow, trying to get out there, trying to get its recognition, trying to have its day in the sun, like under the pressures of being successful, ministries form readers who can't read their own stories well or the biblical stories well. And then John Wayne becomes this 
toxic, masculine, hyper-violent enforcer of his own lusts, right? That's not what he is in the stories. That's not what David is in the texts, but that's what he is in our, in effect, when our imaginations are flattened, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you've got in your, when you're in the context created by our readings of these stories, it's not just that these things are entangled and convoluted, they're flattened together, right? They're for, they're compressed so tightly that now you, you, you have no way of pulling apart. Oh, I see that. I see that. I see this other. And, and therefore you can't hold together grief and joy and awe and respect with pity and even a sense of revulsion, which I think is all of that's there when you read the stories. Well, like we're, when you read David's story in scripture, we're meant to be conflicted about him. Like there are absolutely things about David that are awesome, that, that seem to awe even God. Mm -hmm. And then there are things about David that are revolting. And you, the, the writer of the text wants you to be revolted, like wants you to think, how, how could this boy we've known and watched grow up into a man, how could he do this? Which like, is awesome. I mean, it's so encouraging because when I step back, because I was just re going back through the Dave, end of David's life, because I was thinking about the way you mentioned these hunter heroes have these tragic how they died. Yeah. And I went back because I, you know, I heard all the time in Sunday school of him slaying the giant, evading Saul. And then you'd hear, of course, about Bathsheba and then, but his repentance. But I, I remembered very little of the details surrounding the end of his life. Those felt like stories that weren't told yes. as much. And the end of his life is tragic. Yes. And to me, it's actually like encouraging that the authors, if they were writing propaganda for a pro-Davidian perfect line of kings to continue forever they did a really bad job yeah yeah <laughs> and and the fact the fact is paul like the the thing that changed my life as a reader there, there were two things that happened one is i had a teacher who introduced me to moby dick and i all i mean he he didn't say a lot about it he was just one lecture but he pointed to the ways in which this moby dick is this deeply conflicted novel about the conflictedness of american experience I mean, that changed my life. It absolutely changed my life because I started to realize, oh, here's how all of this stuff I've been experiencing all my life holds together. You know, I'm 17 and I've had these intuitions all along and it just came crashing in on me. So that was the first thing. And then probably 10 years later, I'm at a lecture at Duke and John, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is talking about Genesis. He's, give, he's giving lecture on the the relation between Jews, Christians, and Muslims in, in a post 9-11 world. Mm. And he is talking about the ways in which these stories in Genesis can help point us that direction. And he he just drew attention to the fact that, you know, the first, we begin with a fratricide, right? Cain kills Abel. In Exodus, we open the story with Cain, I mean, with Moses and Aaron serving one another. And he says, if you, we, we've got a trajectory from brother killing brother to brother serving brother. And the text is leading you there. And then he says, now pay attention to the way in which the text does that. The way in which the text leads you there is by provoking these conflicted emotions in you, in which you, you recognize that Jacob is the, is the called one, but gosh, I don't like him. <laughs> like, I don't like what he did. I, yeah. I do not like how he came to get the birthright. And he says, then, and then and this is the line he said, what makes you think? The writer doesn't know what he's doing. Mm. 
And I was like, that's it. Like, I've always been reading these texts, assuming I know more than the texts do. That I I know more than the writer of this text do did when they wrote them. And I, I as far as I know, I've never come to another story that with that attitude again. That I always assume this writer knows what she's doing. This writer knows what he's doing. And if I'm responding with, ah, it's because I'm supposed to, right? I'm supposed to. And that's what happens when you pay attention to the John Wayne stories. You watch a John Wayne movie and you pay attention. That's what happens in you. Not, you know, some glorifying in, in the violence. Like you're left with, man, I'm glad that these people are safe, but like you're always left with that kind of conflictedness. So I think that that's a way forward. We've got to pay better attention. We've got to give a different kind of awareness to these things. The other thing to your question, and I, and I offer this tentatively, but I I don't think, I, well, let me put it, let me put it positively. I do think that all evil, all the evil we do, is because of a lack of holy imagination. That the only time in which you know that idea of necessary evil, mm-hmm. Hannah Arendt has this really terrific. I mean, she's famous, of course, for the Eichmann in Jerusalem stuff and banality of evil. But I think her most important insight, at least for me, is the ways in which when people start talking about necessary evil, it very quickly turns into not the evil that was necessary, but something that was never evil in the first place because it was necessary. Hmm. And there's a fundamental difference between saying it's a necessary evil, but it's still an evil, and saying it wasn't really evil because it was necessary. Yes. And I think that is critically important. And what I've, t- I've taken from Arendt, what, what she left me thinking, was if we have a holy imagination. Now, here's where the Pentecostal upbringing comes back to me. I mean, if if we are truly led by the Spirit of God, if there truly is an infinite wisdom at work in us, then we ought to be able to imagine a way forward that doesn't capitulate to violence, that doesn't covi- capitulate to evil either, that doesn't just simply accept oppression Mm-hmm. as a necessary evil and doesn't necessarily see the killing of the oppressor as the only way out of oppression. Yeah. So I, I, I and that's easier said than done, obviously, but I do think we have seen in, in people like Martin Luther King Jr., for example, in our own context, people who've shown us that that is possible. Now look at how his life ends. Yeah. Right? And I, I do, I do think that this may be a Christian conviction that I don't think people are going to like, but I do think that if you live like that, if you live with that kind of wisdom, you will end up getting killed. One way or another, you'll get pushed out. Your life will end like that. So your options are martyrdom or the tragedy of estrangement through through violence. Um, but it ends it ends badly, <laughs> I think, either way. But but one of those looks like Jesus, right? One of those looks uh, like Jesus. And I, I would want, I would hope that we would want. If it's going to end badly, let it let it end like that, right? Let it end like I, I would rather, in other words, end like MLK, shot dead, you know, in his hotel room, than like John Wayne at the end of most of his movies, where he's estranged with blood on his hands, but not, but but simply estranged. He's simply left out. Right? Yeah, he's simply left out, and am I, I mean that's heartbreaking. I think it, narratively, it's incredibly powerful. But I don't, I don't think that's the Jesus story, right? That's a that's a slightly different story, and I think we have to attend to that. So that, that's where, that's where I would start at least with it. Yeah, I see us 
I see our culture wrestling with this, Chris, too, in this this story. It's not just in Christian subculture. I actually see it on a larger scale, and I'll stick with like, you know, sort of pop guiding stories, and mm-hmm. I'll stick with the uh, the ones that might be most culturally popular. We think of Marvel superhero stories, and I noticed this recently. This trend towards, and this happened. Uh, maybe I'll juxtapose two different, you know marvel stories mm-hmm. big box office ones i'm not talking yeah. about the source material but the big box office movies you have on one hand like the the avengers narrative arc which is largely about how do you ensure that you can gather enough strength and force to defeat an enemy that's more powerful than you through force although that finally ends right with uh, Tony Stark sacrificing his life. So you see this sort of like when we're trying to imagine what is the highest vision of good, it wasn't just Tony Stark beating Thanos to a bloody pulp, though there was plenty of efforts at that. It was the realization I can't do this without self-sacrifice. But that still kind of plays neatly on top of American war narratives, right? You know, I I heard you give a, a talk where you mentioned the, you know, the rather infamous bumper sticker. There's only two people that have ever died for you, you know, Jesus and the American soldier. So I think that plays nicely there. The one recent story that I saw, which doesn't play as nicely with that, and I found it really fascinating, was the last Spider-Man movie that came out. Again, this is lowbrow. It's still the the generic Marvel formula. Good good watch with the kids. But I left that theater really fascinated because they did something different in that story. Instead, they took these the villains from all the different Spider-Man movies past. I don't know if you've seen it or not, Chris. I don't think so. So, so you know, they they bring back the past villains from the, you know, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies and yeah. uh, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies and now this new Spider-Man, Tom Holland. And they bring them into the story. And, of course, the past Spider-Men want to defeat these, these villains through the same practice that one in the past which is just exerting more force and violence but the newest iteration of spider-man has this weird thing that i haven't seen in superhero movies where he actually sees these villains is in some sense being demonically tormented that there was something about their past and something about their story that needed healing and so instead what he tries to do and there's you know there's different plot devices to try to make this thing happen he's actually trying to liberate them and bring them so you take the green goblin mm-hmm. right and he's trying to realize that the green goblin experienced something in his past which demonically bent him in this direction and what we need to do is essentially have an exorcism of this demon mm-hmm. and so i found that really interesting because i left the theater yeah. going that story i don't know how they'll be able to go back because it was so different Mm-hmm. especially in that sort of pop level movie it was so different for them to be like no the villains are redeemable mm-hmm. and of course there's still plenty of punching and violence and explosions but in the yeah. end the way that we're going to save the world is through actually the redemptive reintegration of this villain in the society and i go how are they ever going to tell a different story on top of that at the same time this movie comes out here in minneapolis in light of the the George Floyd killing, just uh, two miles down the street from our church, same we're on the same road as that. Wow. And in light of all of the stuff that came out of that and the protests and then the protests descending into riots, there are these real questions about whether or not agents of wrath still have any role in the city of Minneapolis. And so these debates on a real practical level range yep. yeah, from yeah, things yeah. like 
we need to have less funding because what we've seen as an unjust agent of wrath yep. kill an unarmed man before our very eyes, all the way ranging to we should just abolish the police altogether. Yeah. Yep, yep. So when Christians are participating in these conversations, Christian, you talk about like the prophetic imagination to see, you know, the eschaton. You know, you've got a quote in your book about we fear the nonviolent way of Jesus will not lead into the future we want for ourselves. And we fear his truthfulness will require us to reckon with our past. So we need a John Wayne, a dark knight, to do the evil necessary to save us from evil and then to pass on into exile, bearing our guilt. My question is, when we start moving from story into politics and the practical realities of day-to-day life, I'll just tell you what I saw here in the Twin Cities. And again, I'm processing this. I'm not trying to make an argument against any point that you make, Chris, I'm just wrestling with this, is the very threat, the very even mention of the possibility that there would be a reduction of the police force or abolishing of the police in Minneapolis turned into the worst probably a year to two-year period of violence and chaos that the city had seen since you know some really difficult years in the 90s with gang warfare. Mm. And so the question I wrestle with is, can you as Christians think about this stuff and they go, all right, well, the way of Jesus is that swords should be turned into plowshares. Yeah. So let's turn them into plowshares now. Mm -hmm. Is it naivete? How do we, you know, is there transitional value to Mm -hmm. these hunter heroes where we go, they're, they're playing a remedial transitional role as we approach the eschaton. How much of that eschaton do we, attempt to bring into the now and go, you know, Christians don't participate in the police force because you're going to have to use violent means, which isn't the way of Jesus to accomplish these ends. Don't become a soldier, young man. Don't own a firearm. If you live in a difficult, you know, rough neighborhood. Yeah. So yeah, let me, let me, again, I say this tentatively because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not, um, again, I, I don't, I don't want to sound like a know-it-all I, I and know you haven't chris little. and i I'm, I'm presenting this to you not as an argument for you yeah, know, yeah, yeah i'm i'm working through this myself so here's what, here, yeah here's where i would start say first of all that there absolutely are naive foolish ways of appealing to the peacefulness of jesus the passivity of jesus absolutely ironically one of the one of the things is that leads to is an escalation in violence, as you're pointing out, not only in our streets, but also just rhetorically. Earlier when we were talking about people who are using Dumais' book to attack, you know, what they perceive as to be the you know, the toxic white males that lead. I mean, some of those aren't just perceived to be. I mean, they are, there are yeah. plenty of toxic yeah. white males mm-hmm. in our churches, uh, but the that they weaponize her. Like the the rhetorical violence is is a telling sign, right? And the fact that it's it's arising not from a place of intercessory grief, not through the gift of tears, but finger wagging and you know bullhorn shouting online. So I I, I want to make sure I'm clear about there are naive, I'll just say outright stupid ways of talking about the peaceful way of Jesus that need to be called out as such. Mm-hmm. That said, I do think. If, again, we're led by the infinitely wise spirit, there has to be a way 
to move toward a future of peace and reconciliation that doesn't simply resort to abuse and violence. Yeah. So I, I think we're out. What I would want to say is Christians should absolutely be involved in these forces. And I, I do think I use that word on purpose. I do think we need a difference in our talk between violence and force. Yeah. So I, I don't think violence is ever good. If what I mean by violence is something that violates the other, it's a use of force that violates the other. So, but I think there are uses of force that overpower, but do not violate. But the example I use of this, you probably heard me use it before. I'm in the airport. We're at the gate and somebody, one of the agents opens the gate prematurely, opens the door and the alarm goes off. And there's a, there's a man there seated not far from us who we later learn is kind of on the spectrum and the sound triggers him and he starts to thrash and scream. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's, he's coming out of his skin, right? In, and, but he's a man. I mean, he's as big as I am probably. And his mother who's there with him, like tackles him, like throws him to the ground essentially and climbs on top of him. That's force, but it's not violence. Yeah. Like it's force used to keep him from doing violence. Mm-hmm. Right. So that like that was an she's overpowering him, mm-hmm. but that's the only way she can love him at the moment, right? The only way she can take care of him in ways he can't take care of himself. So what would it look like for us to be involved politically, militarily, to be engaged on the streets in whatever ways with that kind of imagination? That there mm-hmm. are times in which there are forms of force, not just physical force, but forms of force that have to be used, but always from that place of nurturing care like it's a mother who does that yes right so to me it's not do we abolish the police but how do we reimagine the protecting and the serving in ways that can be forceful but are fundamentally nurturing and wise Mm -hmm. wise right and and what so that's that's one dimension of it the other dimension is who we put in those roles i i think the the problem overwhelmingly is we know that there's something about this job that isn't good for people and then we force people into it and we're shocked that it destroys their lives right that you look at what happens to marriages for police officers in these cities looks look what happens to their mental and physical health look what happens to their to their faith we ought to care about that as well right if we're going to ask men and women to serve in those ways we ought to be incredibly attentive to what's happening to them as they do it, right? And I, I think there is, you know, for me, if I, if I'm just, if I'm honest, the disgust I have is not with soldiers and police officers; it's with the people who live in gated neighborhoods, who don't give a damn about what happens either to the people of color or the poor or the homeless who get abused by those officers. Or the officers who themselves have lost control of their lives because of what they're being forced to do. They just want to watch their favorite TV shows and eat at their favorite restaurants without being disturbed. And that is sick. Like, for, like th- that's not a real human life anymore. And I, I think we have to kind of name, not to get all worked up here, but like we have to name, that's the problem. The problem yes. far more than abusive. And there, listen, again, my dad was a police officer you should hear the stories he tells, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There are there are people in the police force who have no business being entrusted with any kind of responsibility publicly, right? right? 
and the way we've policed has attracted very often attracted the wrong kind of person right just like the kinds of churches we built have attracted the wrong kinds of persons right mm-hmm. we've built parachurch ministries and then we're shocked that we get egomaniacs in the pulpit well i mean you ask for it like, like you literally yeah. built a model that requires an egomaniac to fulfill it and that you're shocked that that's someone stepped up to it right so i i think I'm, I'm somewhat rambling here but i i think our focus should be on the people who are taking advantage of the violence profiting from it yes. without getting their own hands dirty that's where the real problem is and i, I think until that changes, we're going to keep throwing these young men and women to the lions mm-hmm. because we don't care about mm-hmm. them any more than we care about the people that they're supposed to be saving us from. It and, seems like, yeah. tell me if I'm hearing you right, that we can make steps. We know, even though we might not know how this could play out in its end result, we know that there are steps in the right direction that we could take that would actually get us further away from idols, further away from the demonic and lead us closer to the way of Jesus. And I think about my argument for years has been, you know, if, if we could at least in America have a convert, a realistic conversation on the just war and nonviolence and pull Christians away from this predominant notion, at least in my lifetime has been this myth of aggressive you know, holy yeah. wars. Yes. To me, that's a win. And so if the yes. if the the pacifists and the just war theorists can't even get along to realize, hey, can we at least move people in the direction away from holy war? Then I to me that's that's a loss. And I to me this might be a similar question is like I don't know how this plays out, but and this is dangerous to even provide any commentary, but when I watched because this was in my church neighborhood, I watched the body cam, the full body cam footage of what happened in the George Floyd incident. I was struck right away about this could have happened. This all could have turned out so differently. If there was someone there that kind of could have did this, the new Spider-Man thing, yeah, which was to see that this, this guy here, it wasn't just like threat of violence. There was some healing. Like there was clearly uh, emotionally triggering experience for George Floyd that he was triggered by right away. And these police officers right away responded to me. And I wonder in the ways that which they might've consumed these narratives over the course of their life about when we see that we have to respond this way mm-hmm. instead of maybe having room for a higher vision that, doesn't like completely abolish the police force in the next month and let chaos reign. Right. But maybe in a practical sense, we are thinking about was there, is there room for training and counseling these remedial behavioral things that don't require us to move to violence so quickly? Maybe that's a win. I, I I don't know. It is. And I, I think if one, we need to think much, much, much bigger picture about the problems we're creating, right? So so often our debate is about we just assume that everything has to be the same. And then what do we what do we change in this small window? But you yeah. know, how do we police differently? But policing is inseparable from the whole fabric of the ways in which we live our lives, right? 
And, and we have to think about that whole fabric. What happens to policing when we, when everything is engaged wisely, right? I mean, I, I think we, we need more attention to, to that, right? Not just if we remove the police, but leave everything else the same. Right. Well, I mean, of course you have a gaping hole, mm -hmm. but if you reimagine the hole in ways that are wise, mm -hmm. what that, then what does the police force become in that new, newly reconfigured? And again, that doesn't happen overnight. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think this is a, a long project that begins with a shift in imagination, a shift. Yeah. In how do we imagine this? Two, two details, one from a movie and one from my, my dad's life. So, a movie you you were talking about the new spider-man movie which i didn't see but the wonder woman the new wonder woman was a couple of years ago we i watched with my daughter which i didn't think was a very good movie but the theme of it was was striking in that the only thing that's going to save the world is self-denial so wonder woman of course the, the way that which all of this she can't defeat the enemy mm -hmm. because she wants to have this impossible thing like she wants to still have this this man that she loved who grew old and died she wants to have him again as her own i don't remember the character's name chris pine plays the plays yep. the role and the but the only ways in which she can gain her strength is through self-denial and then convincing other people to practice self-denial just don't wish for things that you shouldn't want mm -hmm. and evil won't have power over you so you, you, I, again, I haven't seen the Spider-Man movie, but just taking your account of it, layer those two things together that if you can deny yourself things you should not want and you can expel or he, you can expel the demonic or heal the woundedness that the demonic has, has brought about, we're in a different world immediately. Yes. And what does policing look like in a world where we are practicing that healing? We are practicing that exorcism and we are practicing that self-denial. Yes. That's a different world. That's yes. absolutely a different world. Totally. I still think there's a world that's broken. It's still a world in which force will be necessary, but it won't look like this. Right. Mm. And so that's that's where I'm I'm pushing with it. That's great, Chris. So the, if we move Christ into this rightful role as as you, the title of your chapter, this isn't just a book promo, the name above all names. Yeah. If we see him atop the hierarchy of the heroes that we esteem. If we rightly esteem him, then we will always be looking to move beyond the tragic heroes. Yes. Being that the tragic heroes still keep us in current states of the fall instead of moving us towards the eschatological hope of, of a new Jerusalem. And so if we lose sight of that, if we demote Christ to below John Wayne, and so that might be the thing that we, you know, Dumais book gives us some sort of reflection on, some critique on is yeah. maybe we have celebrated these heroes above Christ. And so our imagination in these moments of moral difficulty moves to, to actions that we don't even consider higher possibilities. And so even like just a proper just war theorist yes. recognizes and affirms that when we move to this, it is the thing of last resort. That's one of the conditions is this is a thing of last resort. So let's try to exhaust all our other options first. Let's tackle the man to the ground at the airport and just try to subdue him and not put a bullet in him right, right away. So the old gunslinger mentality, yeah. if we 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 you know we get out the guns, get out the six shooters right away, um, 
that's a lesser vision. It is. So maybe I think what I see you doing is calling Christians and, and maybe we can, we can close with maybe some of your insights about this, Chris, because you argue that beyond the hunter hero, there's another layer of heroes, maybe even in this, we could almost think of it as a great chain of heroic beings <laughs> <laughs> leading up yep. to Christ that you call the saint. Mm -hmm. And so looking at the lives of saints above, not demoting yeah. the hunter hero who does his job yeah. and keeps the order necessary, but maybe we should set our sights higher in celebration of saints. Can you lay out that argument a little bit? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I hinted at this already, but I think the hunter hero dies a tragic death estranged from the society he saved. Like that, that to me is the theme through all these stories. And the estrangement, the, the, the fact that they die in exile, and this is, you know, true John Wayne story over and over again, it's you know the Shane movie is an example of this, but so is Batman, like the the Dark Knight who has to go out in the darkness and do what has to be done, like that, like that hero dies in exile as a witness against the order he has saved, and this this is to me the power of the story is to say I've saved your order, but your order won't include me. That should remind us right away, okay, there's a problem here. <laughs> like like if we if the person we most are indebted to can't be with us, like what are we doing? Why are we doing life this way if the person we should honor the most actually can't abide with us? Like that's I think it's a it's a tragic story that witnesses against what the story seems to be about. It's deeply subversive, right? So this is this is where I, I think Dumais account fails to account for that dimension of it, right? That actually all of these quote unquote masculine heroes are figures that witness against dominant order, not to it. Even though they often save it, they are excluded by it. So that's the first thing. The saint dies in witness of the kingdom of God. So, but that death in some ways is like the hunter hero in that they die outside the city, like Jesus himself does witnessing against the order of the city. But the hunter hero simply dies. It's tragic. It's your order won't include me. And so it's Natty Bumpo or John Wayne at the end of the searchers, like left out there in the darkness, in the traceless, in the trackless waste. But the saint dies in hope of the coming of the kingdom. So there's a, there's a, it's not a tragic death. Mm -hmm. right it's a death of hope it's a death in faith but both die in witness of the need for the coming of the kingdom to get to bring god's order over our orders the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our god mm -hmm. and i think that's why we have to live with our sense of our order isn't the end-all be-all like the as long as we're committed to order above all things we're going to continue to do evil. We have to be open to the coming of the kingdom of God. And I think that begins again in our imagination and in our compassion. The story I was going to relate, which I think may be a, it's a, it's a very personal story. So I, I'm probably 10 years old. I work with my dad and he's a mechanic at this point. So he's left the police force and he's, he's a mechanic. So like as blue collars as possible to be right. I mean, a a middle Oklahoma man who's a Marine and then a police officer and then a mechanic, right? Uh, with a son who's a philosopher and theologian. Which is <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but 
my dad still laughs about that to this day. But so I'm probably 10. And this man who's a, a police officer knows my dad. He came in and he has all of these still shots, like probably a hundred of them in an envelope. And he shows my dad. And it turns out that this this man who I still remember his name, but I won't call it here. This a young man. He He was then probably younger than I am now. So he was in his 30s then and he had been on duty in a bank when someone tried to rob it and he killed the man shot and killed him and he has all of the still shots of the whole exchange so it's not a movie but it's like printouts mm-hmm. of the bank recording right. and he's laying them out for my dad and some other folks who are there at the shop where my dad is and i'm there too so you want to talk about like a kid being brought into a world right so i'm i'm looking at all this and I don't know how to feel about it. Like, I don't know what to make of it. it. One of the things that shocked, I mean, I won't go into details about it, but there were all kinds of like fascinating details that I'd, I, of course, I'd never seen movies, right? So I, I I didn't know what I was going to be seeing. But there was one man who was there who was th- who thought it was the coolest thing he had ever seen. You know, it's like literally ooing and aahing over it and like laughing and kind of punching the guy in the shoulder and I noticed that my dad, and I'm going to cry talking about this actually, that my dad wasn't saying much. And so eventually the, the, the guy who was kind of into the story, he left and it's just my dad and this man and me. And I mean, they, they're, and they're not even noticing me. I don't think, I mean, I'm just this little kid who's, you know, bouncing around the room. And my dad says to him, how are you? Hmm. How, how are you? And I realized, like, you know, in my 10-year-old mind, I realized that's not him. Whatever this is, he doesn't think it's cool. And he's just worried about whether or not his friend's okay. Like, that is the kind of heart that changes the world, right? You know, that's not, you know, my dad's not some Twitter social justice warrior. I mean, he's he's as bona fide <laughs> as it gets, but he, I mean, I mean, violence isn't cool to him, you know? And he he wasn't thinking, oh, look how cool you are killing the bad guy. It was, man, are you okay? Like, mm-hmm. you just killed somebody. Are you okay? And that, I think, the, I mean, think about what that did to me. Like, who am I without a father who responds that way? If my dad was the guy talking about how cool it was, what does my 10-year-old self start to value? start to want you know so I, I i think that story gets at the heart of what concerns are for me in that chapter that's a beautiful story chris I, i'm honored that you even shared that slice of your life it was clearly pivotal and to, to think about the role our fathers play in shaping us and your your dad does sound like a hero yeah you know uh, yeah and i think he is and again i don't mean that in any kind of sentimental way like he's no. a deeply flawed person but that that's what heroism is like i think is that sense of there's no bs to it like he's not caught up in any of the it's not a game to him no and he understands like i don't think he was you know wringing his hands about the fact that this bank robber had been killed no but he was concerned about the the well-being of his friend right he understood that that there are consequences to that and i think that maybe even illustrates one of the points that many of those who argue for total and complete nonviolence 
is not just consideration for those who would potentially be on the other end of unjust violence, but what it does to the one who actually perpetrates violence, what it does to your soul to be in that role that it deforms, it dehumanizes you as well. And so that story, Chris, that's going to stick with me. Mm. Uh, It's a beautiful story. And then what, what happens to your kids, what happens to, you know, so if you are doing violence and this is the thing, again, my dad taught me this, that when police officers are, are being expected to be exposed to this kind of violence, to enact this kind of violence, it spills out on their wives, spills out on their kids, it spills out on their families. And then through their kids onto other kids, through their wives and spouses onto other spouses. And like the, the sickness of violence spreads so quickly. I mean, you know, we're still in a sense living through the pandemic worried about this, but man, violence spreads so much faster than any virus ever could. And is of course far deadlier because it, it actually is not just taking lives. It's taking souls. Right. And we, we, we can't be glib about any of that. Like we can't sentimentalize it or, or glorify it. Um, but we also can't demonize the people who've been forced by us into right. those roles, right? We're the ones responsible for putting them there. Hmm. Wow, Chris, beautifully stated. I, I'm so moved. I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that story all day because I, I that's such a perfect, it just so perfectly captures what uh, we think about what young men in our churches and Christian communities should look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, not to not to discount. I'm not trying to exclude women from this conversation. Oh, sure. There's something yeah, yeah. typically masculine about the the desire to protect, to use your strength. I mean, this is just biologically true. Across the average man is physically stronger mm-hmm. than the average female, and so there's something about what do men do with that strength. And um, there are ways in which that strength, maybe degrees of order and disorder for how we use strength in a way that's in harmony with God's ordering of creation in ways that are disordered. And uh, yeah, I don't, if anything, I don't think there should be a Christian that walks away from reading the Sermon on the Mount whether they agree with Hayes, Richard Hayes's assessment of like, we I don't know how much we can apply if you're in a majority context versus mm-hmm. this is situationally applicable to those who are on the underside of history or the underside of empire. You can have debates about that, but I feel like there can be no debate that you should walk away with a sense of lament and mourning whenever yeah. violence is used, even if it might, in those rare instances, be a necessary evil in that moment to still see it as such, to still see it as not, not the ideal, to see a slain lamb mm-hmm. enthroned as the ruler of the cosmos and not Caesar. So I'm thankful, thankful yeah. for this contribution. Um, I know listeners are going to be deeply moved. I want to encourage all of you, all of you that are listening to grab a copy of Chris's book. Um, please, you know, Chris has been a benefit in my life over the years, and he's got essays, he's got interviews. This isn't just a a product pl- promo here, but this is to maybe bear witness to someone that I think could be of benefit to your own 
formation to think through and grapple with these issues with complexity and charity and nuance, as you've just uh, heard from Chris do throughout this conversation. So Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate, really it. appreciate it. I'm glad we got to connect. We'll, we'll have other conversations in the future. I'm sure it's good. Good chatting with you. We will. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Chris Green. Again, it's just Dr. Green and I having a conversation, which was fun, enjoyable, but nowhere near as fun. If you don't participate, if you don't share your thoughts, reflections, questions, that makes me sharper. It makes me a better thinker. It makes me, uh, I dare even say more Christ-like to hear them all. So please consider doing that. Uh, I engage on Patreon with all the messages I receive. So you can leave me a message there. You can also, again, comment in the comment section below on this YouTube video. Today's episode, again, is made possible without advertisement, without even YouTube monetization because of the generous support of listeners just like you over on Patreon. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John Mark, Josie, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P and Tim. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do this without you. Uh, I hope you enjoy the work that's being presented here. I also write over on my Substack page. You can find a link for that in the description as well. As we head into Holy Week and the Easter season, uh, I, I hope you can deeply contemplate the layers of meaning in Christ's death and resurrection, and that you can follow the way of Jesus in the world in a way that is transformative and brings about the kind of kingdom that Dr. Green and I were both looking forward to being realized. Well, friends, again, until next time, uh, I look forward to hearing from you and hearing your comments. And uh, until that time, we'll talk again soon.